Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad you're joining us uh, for this week's edition, especially during the aftermath of the election and how things are uh, changing so quickly, it seems, day by day. But this gives us an opportunity each week to kind of check in and look at some of these issues and, and get some commentary, some analysis, some, some reflection. I just want to remind you that I do post related articles on Facebook. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow. And also you can catch us after the show if you're not able to join us each week right here on KTRL 90.5 FM, Sundays at noon. Download a podcast, Spotify, Apple, uh, where you get your podcast, Amazon now as well. Uh, but also check us out on SoundCloud where you can listen to previous episodes of the show at your convenience. So I am very happy to welcome back again to the show this week, Dr. Malcolm Cross, who is Professor of Political Science right here at Tarleton State. And he is, uh, in our faculty, is the person to go to for questions about the presidency, about elections and what is happening. And we are looking at so many different things. And I wanted to get him back on the show to talk about some of this, especially now that we know that the Trump administration, or at least we heard from the General Services Administration, moving forward and cooperating or coordinating with the Biden uh, uh, team in terms of uh, his incoming administration and how that is coming together. And so it's still very interesting times, though, when we've got a runoff election coming up in Georgia. We don't know who's going to control Congress or at least the Senate and possibly Congress there. And, and then also all of this around President Trump himself and uh, where what he's doing and how he's engaging and what where he will be going. I mean, what what is his future with the Republican Party and with the possibility, some have said, even another election uh, or another run at the presidency in 2024? Lots and lots of questions. And so I want to, first of all, welcome you, Malcolm. Thank you for joining us again today. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be back. Well, I know you're, you're doing, you've done some writing, reflection, and teaching as well uh, this semester on all of this. I think one of the things that many people may not fully understand is the challenge of transitioning from one administration to another. And especially after a one-term president, I mean, I think that's one thing to look back on. We don't have, we have not had that happen that frequently uh, over the past 40 years. So that that is one thing I think to, to discuss, but then also kind of what goes into a transition like this when one administration is moving out, specifically uh, here you see a change in party identification too, and another one is moving in. And so can you just talk a little bit about that process and what are some of the, the major focal points or some of the, the challenges that go along with that? Okay, well, uh, since World War II, we've had three one-term presidents uh, who were defeated in their re-election bids, Gerald Ford in 1976, uh, Jimmy Carter in 1980, and George H.W. Bush in 1992. And I think when it comes to transitions, what's most important, uh, what really sets the tone for a successful transition is the um, graciousness uh, with which uh, a defeated president accepts the election outcome and uh, the graciousness uh, with which he uh, treats his successor. And what you see in all three of these previous transitions, Ford, Carter, and George H.W. Bush were all gracious in defeat. They were all 
willing to cooperate with their successors in achieving a smooth transition, uh, in maximizing the cooperation between the incoming administration and the outgoing administration. And uh, this, I think, is the key to, to the fact that these three transitions were uh, all very successful. So on, the, on that note, we, we see a, a different approach in this transition uh, that, that has created some challenges because the not only the outcome of the election, and we, certainly we had some recounts and we had some time delay in certification and so on. So there, there has been attempts by the Trump administration and by those who support him to uh, try to look at all of that, which in a way I think was a, a way of them saying, well, we're going to wait on this level of, of collaboration, but it, it has been very slow in coming. And so does that put the, the incoming Biden administration at a disadvantage uh, because of that? Or are we finally seeing this settle enough where now they can go ahead and, and move forward, even though, you know, they've already done some things, but at least that level of communication can be there now? Well, certainly President Trump's uh, decision to accept the implementation of the transition process, even though he's not yet conceding defeat in the election, but his decision to allow the transition to go on will make a bad situation somewhat better. The biggest danger posed by the delay in the transition is simply the reduction in time that the new president and the incoming administration have in uh, getting ready to assume office. One of the um, leading uh, presidential uh, scholars and theorists of the 20th century, Richard Neustadt, wrote that the original reason for moving the inauguration of a new president up from March 4th to January 20th was to reduce the time between the election and the time when the uh, outgoing president, especially if he were defeated for re-election, had to relinquish office. As you know from your history, basically four months elapsed uh, between the defeat of President Hoover in November of 1932 and the inauguration of President Roosevelt in March of 1933. And the conventional wisdom has been that during that four-month period of time, there was a long period of paralysis as uh, the Hoover administration became less and less effective in coping with the Great Depression, and therefore you needed to shorten the transition time. But what Newstatus argued is that by shortening the transition time, you shorten the time in which a newly elected president has to prepare for taking over. And that can be pretty dangerous too. An incoming president like a John F. Kennedy could mishandle a crisis that he inherits from a previous administration like the Bay of Pigs. Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton both made some early pretty serious personnel mistakes uh, in coming in after relatively short transition times. So time is of the essence, and President Trump effectively reduced the transition period for Biden by three weeks. And it's too early to tell what damage, if any, that's going to do. Uh, Joe Biden is a very seasoned and experienced politician and public servant but uh, it's definitely not going to help them. Well, we also have that added dimension too with the uh, runoff election in Georgia. And, mm -hmm. and of course we know that the, the Senate will be the ones to uh, vet the nominations of the incoming administration. Just for our listeners sake too, how does that process work? Uh, you know, once the new Congress is in place, we see some of that can also have delays too, if it's not, far enough along so that when the president takes office that 
those can, that vote on those nominees for different cabinet positions can go ahead and move forward. Do you, do you see that this election uh, is going to have any impact on that and, and, and really this delay of three weeks? Uh, I know Biden's already announced some of his cabinet positions, but we really have to wait for that new Congress to be in place uh, for that vetting to begin, uh, from what I understand. Right. And um, yeah, the new Congress meets on January 3rd, but the Georgia runoffs aren't going to be until January 5th. So at least for the for the first couple of days, uh, there's going to be question as to who gets to control the Senate. And depending on how close the elections in Georgia are, um, it might take more than a couple of days to settle things. When it comes to uh, to making cabinet appointments, uh, as you know, the president appoints, but the Senate has to confirm. And this is going to be especially problematical with a Senate controlled by the opposition party. Uh, the idea that the president has a right to have whom he wants to in his administration uh, has never been you know, constitutionally or legally established. The president has the right to nominate, but the Senate has the last say over personnel. But it's going to be made more different with the fact that Congress, I mean, especially the Senate, is already very polarized. And with uh, most Democrats, uh, most Democrats uh, voting in opposition to most Republicans most of the time, especially on personnel matters, the Democrats in the Senate, quite frankly, created a very, very bad precedent in uh, January, well, in the first months of uh, the Trump administration, because most Democrats voted against all of President Trump's cabinet appointments. And if the Republicans decide to return the favor, uh, and if they get a majority, that is going to make, make it extremely difficult for Biden to fill uh, his cabinet. Hopefully, what Biden will be able to do with Mitch McConnell is to arrive at some compromises over who should be in the cabinet. Uh, Biden, uh, like most presidents will discriminate very, very heavily in favor of members of his own party for cabinet positions, but uh, he will have to probably staff his cabinet with men and women reputations, not only for great experience, but for uh, a great degree of moderation as well. So along with those cabinet appointments, are there are a wide number of political appointees that are in different levels at different agencies across uh, government. Uh, I think this is an area that, you know, we, I, I really don't have time when I teach federal government to get into in terms of transition after elections. And so, you know, most people are, may not be fully aware that there's just, there's just hundreds, if not thousands of, of, of these positions. And what is that like in this transition period is, I know we've seen some things delayed in certain areas in previous administrations for for months that positions will go and, and whether it's the lack of time to give that attention or the lack of preparation in, in an incoming administration. But uh, how, how does that transition take place? When does an, an incoming administration uh, start to decide who they're going to keep or not and, and when, when they go or when they come or how, the, how quickly they try to get their people in place? Well, the 1978 Civil Service Reform Act created several thousand top-level management positions, uh, which collectively are called the Senior Executive Service. And um, most of these positions are filled by uh, members of the senior bureaucracy uh, whom the president can appoint. Uh, when they accept appointment to these positions, they give up their civil service protection. In other words, once they're appointed, the president can fire them if, if they don't work out. 
And in addition to that, up to 10% of these positions can be filled by uh, personnel from outside the federal government. And typically presidents will appoint uh, their own political followers to these top level positions. This helps explain incidentally, uh, part of the success of the Ronald Reagan administration. Um, the Civil Service Reform Act was passed in 1978, but it was Ronald Reagan who was the first president to take full advantage of it and uh, to embed, so to speak, within the bureaucracy, many up and coming young Reaganites. Now, what typically happens at the end of, a, of an administration is that all the folks in the senior executive service are replaced. They leave the administration, they leave government, and they are replaced by uh, men and women selected by the new president. And again, that's going to be problematical for Joe Biden uh, because many of these positions, especially undersecretaryships, deputy secretaryships, assistant secretaryships, require Senate approval. And it's absolutely certain that the Republicans are going to be looking uh, at Joe Biden's nominees with a pretty cold gimlet eye. And that doesn't mean Biden is going to fail, but it's going to mean that Biden is going to have to work a heck of a lot harder to staff his administration, um, given the political polarization that currently afflicts the government and given the large number of, the relatively large number of positions that uh, he's going to have to fill anyway. So there's two factors in that that, that I've seen. One is that it seems like in some areas with the Trump administration and use the State Department, for example, that there was a significant amount of downsizing uh, that you would think in a Biden administration that, that probably some of that's going to be a, an attempt to put some of that structure uh, back together. But the, the other side of it would be, uh, like you said, the Senate in terms of the delay here, it, it really seems like this is going to be one of the things that may have an impact on what the Biden administration is able to do early on is how quickly they can get people in these key positions uh, and not only uh, in a way put back in place in some of these agencies what a, a career politician like Joe Biden would see might be essential in a state department or a department of the interior or homeland security and, and so on, uh, but but also implementing an, an agenda uh, in, in these areas, especially right now with economic issues, the pandemic, and so on. I, I just think it, I think that, to me, stands out as one of the biggest challenges in this transition is how, especially after a one-term president now, you're switching parties, you're switching administrations. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on that, but it just it, that's something that you don't see covered much in the news. But for us that teach this and are kind of on the inside, it, it just seems like a monumental task. Well, I think you're right. I think monumental is the perfect word to describe it. Joe Biden, I think, is, first of all, is going to have a number of challenges. Uh, the two most obvious are, first of all, stimulating the economy. And secondly, and I think more importantly, is getting the, uh, the pandemic under better control. Now, in this second area, he may very well be aided uh, as uh, more and more pharmaceuticals are coming forward with you know, with uh, uh, vaccines that hold out a great deal of promise for success. But there's still going to be the big challenge of distributing them. But when it comes to dealing with these issues and with basically every issue that he's going to have to confront, especially on the domestic side uh, of public policy, Joe Biden is going to be fighting more or less of a two-front war. On one front, there are the Republicans. And 
you know, amongst the general public and within the Congress, he'll get the most uh, intense opposition from Trump loyalists, many of whom still will probably never accept the outcome of the election. Other Republicans out of philosophical commitment, even if they accept the fact of Joe Biden being the president, aren't going to agree with this uh, public policy approach. The second front is going to be against the so-called progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Probably Donald Trump is the biggest uniter of the Democratic Party, that it was the the desire on the part of the Democrats uh, to replace President Trump with a Democrat in the White House that got the progressives and uh, you know, the, the moderates on the same page that got them all uh, behind Joe Biden. But uh, this does not mean that the progressives aren't going to cease in their demands for a much more aggressive, progressive approach to public policy, a more ambitious Green New Deal than, than Joe Biden is comfortable with, uh, Medicare for all, which Joe Biden is on the record as opposing. There are a number of issues on which uh, Joe is going to be pushed very, very hard by Bernie Sanders, by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other progressives in the Senate and the House. He's really got his work cut out for him. Yes, I, I, I agree. I, I think there's, uh, it, it's interesting in looking at the outcome of the election and really in what we've seen in, in previous elections, no matter where the popular vote lands, but the really the divide that's there and the, and the challenges of trying to bring people together in, in government. I mean, much less the, the nation as a whole, which is not, you know, we, we, we talk about that in general terms and we know it's much more complex than that in terms of engagement with different constituencies and uh, different uh, political ideologies and so on. But when you have it represented in government, like it is where you're looking at a congressional election in two years, you have a house that's become more narrower. You have a Senate that uh, if if not split even Republicans, you know, look look to be the favorites going into this uh, runoff election. Uh, that the challenges are certainly before him. While we have have some time left, though, let's let's shift a little bit to President Trump because, by all accounts, and looking at all of this, and looking at the level of support that he received in in voting across the country on uh, for this election, um, it 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 just seems that he is is not going away in terms of politics. I mean, that that he has some influence that could move beyond just, you know, not just this election, but have some influence in two years and possibly even uh, four years. But in looking at some of the things that, that I have, I think some are concerned about what his strategy is here. And, and if it's if it's starting to change now that, that you know, Michigan certified and Pennsylvania and so on in this uh, refuting the election is is not the, the the strategy, but wondering what that is, because here's a unique opportunity for him not only have an influence probably on the election in Georgia, but in the party as a whole going forward. And I didn't know what what you how you understand that and just looking at what what either he's attempting to do or if it, if all it is right now is just getting over the loss and then trying to transition here, what what might that look like? Where is his influence going to be? Uh, in a Biden administration, and as we look at the political dynamics going forward over the next few years? Well, I think that what President Trump is trying to do is to delegitimize the election and to delegitimize the incoming Biden administration. It's for a president to be successful, uh, he, mu- he must not only be the legitimately elected president in the narrow legal sense, 
but his authority, his authority has got to be accepted um, by the Congress and by the American people as well. And this was the cloud under which President Trump uh, has had to operate ever since uh, he emerged as the winner in our very bizarre election of 2016. Um, uh, it was clearly established that he won the, uh, that he electoral vote the, uh, and he needed to win the majority of the electoral vote to become president, but he lost a popular vote. Now the popular vote is legally insignificant, legally meaningless under the constitution of the United States. Nonetheless, we in America are used to the idea that to be elected to office, city council, state legislature, Congress, you gotta get the most popular votes. And if you don't get the most popular votes, something's off. And so I think that President Trump has lacked political legitimacy in the minds of, in, you, know, with, you know, throughout the American public, uh, there was talk of impeaching him uh, even before his inauguration. Um, and I think what President Trump is trying to do uh, now is to create doubts about the legitimacy of Joe Biden. Now, the big obstacle that President Trump has is that Joe Biden seems to have won six million more popular votes than President Trump. And as I say, in, uh, in America, you win political legitimacy by getting more votes than the other guy. Um, but uh, President Trump seems to want to cast doubt on the accuracy of the election results. Uh, if he can create enough doubt in the minds of enough people, then there are going to be millions and millions of people out there who are going to say, well, maybe President Trump uh, was robbed. Maybe Joe Biden is not uh, as legitimate as he thinks he is or as the, as the press thinks he is. And if the president, if President Trump can undermine Joe Biden's legitimacy, uh, that means, first of all, it'll be more difficult for Biden to get his, uh, to get his policies through Congress, especially if the Republicans reclaim the Senate and, and they have a very excellent chance of doing this, regain a majority in the House of Representatives in uh, 2022. Uh, all the signs are lining up for a big Republican victory then. And if you have a delegitimized Joe Biden facing an overwhelmingly Republican Congress in the last two years of his term, uh, that is going to set the, uh, the stage for some pretty massive public policy failures on the part of President Biden. Plus, it'll make it easier for President Trump to, uh, uh, you know, to make a comeback in 2024. Um, I mean, it won't be easy for him to do it if he tries to do it, and it's not yet clear that he's going to try for a, for a second term in 2024. But if Joe Biden can be legitimized, uh, if his uh, administration can be successfully portrayed as a failure, that's going to increase President Trump's chances of making a comeback and seeing Donald Trump inaugurated on January 20th, 2025, hopefully after a gracious transition from Joe Biden. So what is, uh, what is his strategy, uh, President Trump's, uh, what can he do within the party itself uh, as we look ahead, uh, trying to maybe think about what uh, those kinds of outcomes that you're talking about, uh, where, how does he go about doing this? I mean, does he just continue to be himself and, and engage with issues publicly as much as possible, tweet every 
three minutes and, you know, on, on something that Biden is doing. Uh, I mean, what, what do you, we've looked at his, his, uh, the way he's engaged with the presidency over the last four years, which has been very, very, very different, uh, very uh, unique in terms of, of who he is and, and, and also very challenging in some ways too, in terms of communication and engagement. But I'm just wondering where we're going to see him and in, in going forward, because no matter which side you're, you're on in terms of uh, political party identification, uh, uh, that's going to be politics. I mean, it, it's going to be interesting and, and I don't, I don't see that that he's going to uh, uh, fade away at all. I mean, it just seems like he's going to be a very much a force. I just I'm wondering where where within the Republican Party, how how does that how do you see that kind of working? Well, uh, first of all, uh, uh, he'll definitely be uh, on social media. Uh, he's a genius at social media. If he's tweeting every three minutes, that's he's probably having an off day. He'll probably <laughs> tweeting a lot more frequently than that. Um, uh, I think that uh, he can also uh, work to, uh, especially in the 2022 midterms, to endorse some candidates, uh, to oppose other candidates. Uh, he could probably be a very effective fundraiser uh, amongst, uh, you know, g- given, a, given the size of his following. Um, so he has a number of roles to play as a tweeter, as an endorser, as a fundraiser, and uh, but in all these situations, he's going to be basically himself. And uh, that repels many, many millions of people, but also attracts many, many millions of people as well. So that's why I see things shaping up for him for the time being. So there's there's much more to come on this story. It's not over yet in terms of uh, Donald Trump's uh, entry into politics and uh, his uh, services presidency, but also in looking at the challenges of the Biden administration in the in the months and years ahead. It's it's always uh, presidential politics are always engaging and have so many facets to them. And I I'm always appreciative of your time to be able to come on uh, the show and and talk about some of this. So Malcolm, thank you so much for for doing that today. And uh, as we see uh, a new administration take office, we'll know uh, where to go to, to get some more insight into uh, some of the dynamics, because we're probably going to be looking at a, a, a different uh, Congress in terms of a, a, in a relation, different relationship with an incoming administration. And that's going to offer more things to analyze on how all this is going to move forward. So again, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. We'll take a short break and we'll be back for more on politics. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. We're glad you are joining us today, and we thank once again Dr. Malcolm Cross, Professor of Political Science at Tarleton State, for his analysis and insight on the transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, as well as looking ahead to what may be some of the challenges as a Biden administration 
uh, moves in and possibly faces a divided Congress, uh, possibly a Donald Trump that will still be active in the Republican Party uh, and trying to counter some of the things that uh, Joe Biden will be trying to do. So I want to remind you, if you missed that first part of the show, that you can go to SoundCloud after the show airs today, and you can hear this and previous episodes and looking at how we've covered the election and other state, local, and national issues. And you can also download this where you get your podcast. So moving into the second half of the show, there's a couple of things that I want to look at. And one is to move to the state of Georgia. As we mentioned in the previous segment, all eyes are starting to focus there uh, on the uh, Senate runoff. And actually, we have something that's very, very unique, and that is that both Senate positions from Georgia uh, are going to a runoff. And so you had two races, one to fill an unexpired term and one for a full term. Uh, and they both ended in uh, with no candidate receiving the majority of the vote, which is required by Georgia law, uh, thus uh, meaning there will be a runoff uh, in uh, January. And the interesting thing about this is, is that it will determine the, the control of Congress, specifically the Senate, uh, because right now as it stands, Republicans hold 50 seats in the Senate and Democrats and the independents who caucus with them hold 48 states. So these two seats are very critical. If Democrats win those two seats, it will be a 50-50 split in the Senate with, of course, the vice president and the incoming vice president is, of course, the Democrat uh, Kamala Harris would be able to cast a deciding vote uh, when there is a tie or when there is voting along party lines. If the Republicans win these seats, or at least one of them, uh, they will have a slight majority in the Senate. And that can mean a number of things, as we discussed in that previous section uh, for Joe Biden. So all eyes attention are being focused on Georgia right now. And of course, millions of dollars, millions and millions of dollars from uh, all across the country, uh, from both parties are pouring into Georgia uh, for television advertising and so on. And I'll, I wanna just go over a few uh, things that we need to be looking for and a few factors that are involved here because it's really, really critical uh, in, in terms of what uh, the Biden administration and what government is going to be able to do or what, what uh, areas are going to have to be addressed and, and worked out in order to uh, address some of the critical issues uh, that we have in the country today. So this runoff election is because Georgia created a law in the 1960s. It was seen at that time as a way to preserve white political power in a majority white state and diminish the influence of black politicians uh, who could run uh, more easily in a multi-candidate race and win with the plurality of the vote. And so uh, the, the focus on this was to say, if no one received the majority of the vote, there would have to be a runoff. And since the 1990s in the system in Georgia, Democrats have won only one of seven statewide runoffs in general or special elections. So what we look at here is that this is, at this point, some would say this favors the Republicans. Republicans have won most of these runoff elections in Georgia. 
uh, Republicans fare well across the nation, not just in Georgia in runoff elections, uh, especially in the South, uh, when you're looking at uh, these states that are that are mostly red. Uh, but we saw some interesting dynamics in the general election. Uh, one is that Joe Biden won the state. Uh, now he won, it was very, very close. If we look at the margin, it's less than 14,000 votes. It went to a recount that is 0.2% uh, of, the, of the total vote that separated Joe Biden from Donald Trump. But when we look at the Senate races, the Senate, uh, the Republican candidates uh, both won most of the vote. So in the race between David Perdue and John Ossoff, one of the races, Perdue won by almost 2% of the vote. And in the other race, the special uh, election that was uh, held at the same time too, um, Ralph Warnock, uh, while he got the most votes of any candidate, 32.9%, if you total the uh, Republican votes for Kelly Loeffler, who, uh, who is in, going to be in the runoff, and then Doug Collins, uh, you actually have more people voted for the two Republican candidates. That was over almost 46% of the vote. So 46% for Republican candidates, uh, around 38%, 39%, if you consider both Democratic candidates uh, that were in the special election. So all under 50%, so going to a runoff. So what are the the issues here. What are some of the interesting factors about this that uh, make this uh, a very interesting, not just unique because you have two Senate positions and it's will determine really the balance of power in Congress. And when we look at the data, there's a couple of points here to, to, to look at. In the general election in which Biden won, uh, voting among African-Americans uh, was not as strong. Uh, as it, it was thought it would be. In fact, that, that percentage of the vote of, of African-Americans that turned out to vote really start, it has been declining and continued uh, to decline. And so that's one factor here is to see, okay, will this go back up? Will this Senate race and control of Congress and the possibility that the Biden administration could have uh, Democrats controlling both uh, uh, parts of Congress could that invigorate the African-American vote or is it, is it steadily uh, declining uh, as a percentage of the overall vote in Georgia? That, that's one factor to look at. The other thing is that if uh, citizens of the state of Georgia wanna vote, they have until December 7th to register. And it is estimated that 20,000 people will turn 18 uh, between the general election on no November 3rd and December 7th. So that's 20,000 more potential voters, which when we're looking at some of these races could be very critical. I mean, Biden won by less than 14,000 votes. So 20,000 additional votes uh, could determine the outcome of this election. The other factor is money. There is lots and lots of money, millions and millions of dollars being poured in on both sides of this for advertising, for voter registration drives, for getting out the vote. And so money, I think, is going to be very, very critical. Uh, again, I think it will come down to uh, turnout. And we saw very high turnout uh, in this uh, general election in no early November. But will that be reduplicated? Usually special elections 
uh, turnout is not as good. It's not as, as high as it uh, is in, in a general election. And so that could also favor Republicans and it could impact uh, this race significantly. The other thing too, is that we're seeing in Georgia in the, in the, the exit polling and looking at the demographics of those who voted that, that the voting, the electorate in Georgia is, is more diverse and much young, is younger, is getting younger. Uh, and so that is another factor here when you see that that diversity and that younger electorate, especially when you look at the parts of the state around Atlanta, around Columbus and Macon, Augusta, that stretch between the middle of the state, if you look at maps that, that turn blue, uh, all the way down to Savannah, uh, another area, these larger population areas uh, that supported uh, Biden and thus helped him win even by a very close margin. There are some other things here that, though that are, that are factoring into this race. And as I've said, uh, this is a race for Congress. This is a, a race that may invigorate many people, especially if Donald Trump gets involved and tries to encourage the base of support that he has in this state of creating that firewall of Republicans maintaining control of the Senate uh, so that it, it diminishes uh, Biden's agenda or requires that he makes certain compromises or adjustments or just gives him difficulty uh, in his administration in these early years, especially looking ahead to the uh, election, the congressional elections that will happen uh, in 2022. So this is going to be an interesting race to watch. All eyes across the nation, at least uh, politicos and, and anyone else that's engaged with national politics is watching what's happening in Georgia uh, because of the, the issues and because of this race and because of its impact on national government. So I would encourage you just to, to follow some of this, to, to look at what's happening. Uh, it's interesting in other ways because here we have a Southern state, uh, Georgia with a, a Southern political culture uh, that has elements that are similar to some states across the South, especially the deep South. But then when you also look further West to Texas and to see how, how this is happening, what, what actually is going on here in terms of the shift in the electorate we already know the urban to suburban shift where you have uh, not just central urban areas that are voting Democratic, but then those suburbs, the growing amount of suburbs around those urban areas. But then this also tells us different things about the direction of the electorate uh, in the state. Like I said, more diversity, younger, uh, a smaller percentage of the African-American vote. Uh, how, how all of this factors in will, will give us some insight into what's going on uh, within states across the South and what inroads or possibilities Democrats may have in the future. Uh, of course, as we saw in Texas with this general election, Republicans are, are firmly ensconced in terms of the legislature and controlling the redistricting process and what was thought might be inroads by Democrats into more congressional seats as well as into the state legislature uh, just did not materialize as we've talked about uh, in, in previous uh, episodes of the show. So again, watch Georgia. Let's look and see what happens and it will be interesting, especially as we have a, a lot of transition now uh, between now and uh, the, the day that Joe Biden is sworn in 
as the next president. In this last segment of the show, I want to turn to uh, something that connects really with the week. I know we're broadcasting here after Thanksgiving, and yet this also brings in a politics. So one is, and I've said this on the show before, uh, that I teach a class in religion and politics. And so I tell my students when I teach that, uh, that uh, they'll be prepared to go home for good conversation at Thanksgiving. Uh, on religion and on politics. Uh, but one of the things about this holiday that we look at, and, and when we talk about religion and politics, this is a, a, a day and a, an observance uh, that's very much connected with American, what we'd say, civil religion, uh, in that here is something that a, a day that is uh, has religious uh, tones, has religious influences, uh, but it is a, a national holiday. It's a day that's celebrated by the majority of Americans. It's a national uh, day, a day off for many people. Uh, and so here we have an observance that, that is very much connected to the American identity and experience. And of course, there's lots of things, lots of facets of this. I wrote text uh, on this day uh, in my previous uh, work for about 20 years in reflecting on this. So you, know, you can pr approach it from all different aspects of it. Uh, but one of the things that I wanted to do was to go back and look at the initial proclamation of Abraham Lincoln in 1863 on setting aside a day of Thanksgiving, which will really be the foundation of this being observed as a national holiday uh, going forward. Uh, it, it takes a while for it to take hold, but it, it, it will eventually uh, become a regular holiday. But this letter is very interesting because it is in the midst of the Civil War. And because it is in the midst of, of that time period, there's conflict, there's tragedy, there's suffering, uh, there's struggle that's going on in the nation. And as I read through this letter uh, in preparation for the show, there were so many things that connected with where we are as a nation right now in the midst of this pandemic and some of the elements of the pandemic uh, that, that really are uh, um, uh, in some ways associated very closely, we could see with some of the challenges that the nation faced uh, in 1863. So I wanna take a moment here, we have time today. I wanted to read this letter and I just wanted you to think about the themes and the ideas. It is very heavily influenced with religious themes and, and theological tones, which of course is the nature uh, of, of reflection uh, and engagement with these kinds of issues that we see from presidents, uh, not just in that time period, but we still even see it today to some extent, especially when there are national tragedies, uh, when there's national observances uh, that uh, call on uh, a president to really be a leader and to step out in front of the people and to engage with it in a substantive way that helps people uh, find some common uh, elements and experiences in order to be able to move forward. So I want to read this uh, letter. And again, I ask you to think about the, the themes that it is offering in the same context, in this context of today where we are engaged in such a challenging uh, experience with the pandemic that's around us by the President of the United States, a proclamation. The year that is drawing toward its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and even soften the heart which is habitually insensible 
to the ever watchful providence of Almighty God. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invite and provoke their aggressions, peace has been preserved with all nations, order has been maintained, the laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed everywhere, except in the theater of military conflict. While that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union. Needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense have not arrested the plow, the shutter, the shuttle, or the ship. The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements and the mines as well of iron and coal as of the precious metals have yielded even more abundantly than heretofore. Population has steadily increased notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the camp, the siege and the battlefield and the country. Rejoicing in the consciousness of augmented strength and vigor, it is permitted to expect continuance of years with large increase of freedom. No human counsel hath devised nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the most high God who while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States, and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands, to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next, as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience, commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers, in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged, and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation, and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. In testimony whereof I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed, done at the city of Washington this third day of October in the year of our Lord, 1863 of the independence of the United States, the 88th, Abraham Lincoln. Now, I, I wanted to read that because I think it, it very much uh, identifies some of the elements that we are seeing in the midst of this pandemic in a time when we all want to be gathered together as we normally do uh, for Thanksgiving and with having to address those challenges. And I think it puts it in context, whether you're a religious person or not, uh, but when we talk about the engagement of religion within the political sphere and within governance, this is often as we see that this has developed over the course of our country uh, been the a role for the president. We've had many presidents who, who not only spoke in this way and used religious themes and ideas, 
uh, but try to, to bring those into a, a point of reflection, especially when there were great tragedies and great struggles and great causes uh, that were uh, against the nation. And so this is very much an example of it. It's one that was influential in establishing Thanksgiving as a holiday, uh, but it also gives us cause and, and the opportunity to reflect uh, and to think about uh, some of the things that our forebears have faced in this country, uh, how they've addressed those and dealt with them, and, and understanding uh, the, the role that, that those in governance, those that are our political leaders have had in trying to encourage people to not only unite uh, in addressing the adversity, but trying to find ways through it and ways to move forward. Uh, one of the things that Lincoln does in this is he emphasizes that things have moved on. Things have continued to, to progress. The, the, the nation has continued to move. And in this one line here, as he says, that because of that strength and vigor is permitted to expect the continuance of years with a large increase of freedom. Uh, again, for your reflection, I ask you to go, invite you to go and look this up. I'll, I'll post it also on our Facebook page at On Politics with Eric Morrow. Uh, and I also, though it's post-holiday, conclude the show here by wishing you and yours uh, a happy and safe uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, we will be looking forward in the weeks ahead to interviews with newly elected uh, leaders in our uh, state uh, and national government, uh, and also some reflection on the political dynamics in the state and preparations for the meeting of the Texas legislature uh, after the new year. Thank you for joining me today on politics. Join us right here each week at 12 noon on KTRL 90.5 FM. That's on Sunday uh, for the show or catch us on SoundCloud or where you get your podcast. Thank you for joining us today, and we will be back with you again next week. From me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.